Romans chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, that's all right. Our ushers are coming right now, and I didn't grow up in a church where they taught the Bible, so it was all new for me to be like, what, what, what? So just grab a Bible, raise your hand. If you can't find Romans chapter 2, we'll help you. But one of the things we believe is that the Bible's God's word. So we're not here to talk about what's on our mind. We want to listen to what's on God's mind because the Bible has such a wonderful way of changing our lives and picking us up and giving us new life and direction. So we're doing a study of the book of Romans. And two weeks ago when we started, we said, Paul said in 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And one of the most important verses of, the, of this book is Romans 1.16 where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. And we learned there that the gospel is God's powerful way that he saves people. It's the only way. It's a powerful way that God saves people by crediting them his righteousness. He powerfully saves you from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, from the presence of sin, and from the prince of sin, Satan. And so... It's a wonderful book, the book of Romans, and we're going to learn about the gospel. So Paul says, I'm, I'm eager to tell this to you because the gospel reveals how you can get right with God. But that's not the only thing the gospel reveals. So in verse 18, Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed. And again, that's revealed in the gospel. And, and what he means by that is there are certain things about God that you will not learn from creation. You can't look out and go, I looked at those trees and figured out that Jesus died for me. So the Bible is God's special revelation. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by God. These are the words of the Lord Jesus and his apostles that he brought to us to preach and proclaim and to respond to. So when Paul says, I want to tell you about this powerful way that God saves people, the first thing he does in Romans 1 through 3 is he addresses the fact that we need to be saved. Because until we understand that we need salvation, we need God's righteousness, why would I want to be saved? Remember I used the, the illustration, lifeguards don't go up to people on the side of the pool and go, do you want to be saved? Because they don't need to be saved. And much of American culture, the reason that they're not flocking to Christ to be saved is because they don't understand that they're lost. And they don't realize that they're just one breath away from eternal hell. So in Romans 1 through 3, chapter 1, 18 through 320, Paul's going to show us man's need to be saved. But he doesn't qualify and quantify everybody in the same group. There are different types of sinners. And the broadest category of the types of sinners are irreligious sinners and religious sinners. Paul's going to call them Gentiles and Jews, or in this case, maybe moral ones. So, Last week we looked at, or two weeks ago, we looked at chapter one where Paul was indicting irreligious people. He says, look, I don't care if they know anything from the Bible about God. They're inexcusable because they've suppressed the truth about God. They worship creation. They speculate about God. They form these idolatrous practices. And God says, I gave them over to their immorality and their heart and heart. And it's not like they're innocent victims. When we left off, we saw in verse 32, they know irreligious people, if they've never heard a word from the Bible, they still intuitively know that they're headed for punishment. Look at verse 32. Those who practice such things are worthy of death. And they know that. 
but they keep on doing the same and approve others who practice them. But this morning, Paul's going to make a switch here. He's going to say, okay, so here's these irreligious, godless people who do murder and wickedness. They're drug addicts. They hate God. They hate everybody. And we sort of look at that and we go, well, yeah, but that's not me. I'm not like that. And Paul goes, yeah, exactly. Matter of fact, I want to talk to you. So look how he turns a corner in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, remember he said in 118, these irreligious people are without excuse. But now he turns to religious people, moral people. And he says, therefore you are without excuse. Every man of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. So, so he sort of set us up for that. He reads this list of awful things and he goes, yeah, those people need to go to hell. And then he goes, you know what? So do you. Somebody once said, whenever you point your finger at others, you're pointing three at yourself. Okay? Now, I find that most Americans or many Americans will fit into this category. So as we're going through this passage, I want you to think about this. There's a, you witness to a godless pagan in a different way than you do to a religious person, a very devout Protestant or a very devout Roman Catholic who, who's trying to get to heaven by good works, and they're, and they're morally really doing their best to try to do good. And so the Bible says that pastors are to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. So as we're going through this, even if you're already a believer, you can look at this and say, okay, how do I witness to my religious friends? Because you witness to them in a different way. So let's pray. Lord, open our eyes as we read this passage. For we pray it in Jesus' name, and for your glory, amen. I want to actually look at verse 16, and then we're going to go back and go through 1 through 16. But Paul says, on that day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So one of the most prominent things that this passage is going to teach us is that there's coming a judgment day in which God is going to judge everyone through the Lord Jesus. Some of you know someone else who had to go to court. And that someone else, when they met with the lawyer, said, what do you think I'm going to get for this? You know, is there any chance I'll I'll get mercy? And that someone else was told by the lawyer, depends on which judge you get. That's kind of sad, right? Depends on which judge you get. What, they're not all just fair and just and right? No. But you don't even have to wonder which judge you're going to get. Paul says, on that day, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. That's a cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith. Jesus Christ is coming to judge everybody who ever lived. So if you're wondering which judge you'll get, the honorable judge, Lord Jesus Christ, and you're going to stand in front of him, okay? And you're going to have an opportunity to place your plea before him. Now, in this passage, we're going to see that the moral person has made a wrong calculation. They're assuming that they're in. Well, yeah, I'm not like those bad people, so come on down. So let's look. Paul says, you're without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. Now, notice here, they're not condemned for judging. They're condemned, he says, for you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the righteous judgment of God falls upon those who practice such things. 
So he goes, it's kind of preposterous to go, they're going to get it. God's going to judge them. They deserve it. And then he goes, yeah, and so are you going to get it. And you deserve it because you did the same thing. Now, when I read that, I go, wait a minute. I don't hate God. I'm not a murderer. We need to understand that the Bible has so much to say about sin that your sin might not be the exact same as the most godless, irreligious person. But yours and my sin still qualifies us for a front row seat in hell. For example, Jesus said, you shall not commit adultery. And you go, well, I've never done that. But Jesus said, if you look upon a woman to lust for her, you've committed adultery in your heart. I've never murdered anyone. Jesus spoke of anger as putting us in danger of hell. So it's not saying here that you and I may be the most terrible person, but the idea is stop looking at murderers and terrible people thinking they deserve hell and realize that when all the smoke clears, I deserve hell because there's many things that I have done. But because we deceive ourselves, look at verse 3. Paul says there's two reasons why God's going to condemn self-righteous people. He goes in verse 3, do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and you do the same things yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? So the, the first problem is, is that they've forgotten that they do sinful practices, but the second problem is they refuse to repent. Look what he says. Verse 4, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself. So I want to talk about this idea of what does it mean to repent? Okay, because that was the first message Jesus preached. From that time, Jesus began to preach, repent. The word repent means to change your mind and to be willing to turn from your sin. Many people are going to go to hell because they don't want to turn to God. They love to do things their way, right? So Jesus Christ comes along and says, no, it's wrong to have sex if you're not married. It's wrong to have an affair. It's wrong to lie. It's wrong to get drunk. It's sin. And the Bible says many perish because they won't receive the love of the truth to be saved. They don't want to come to Jesus. It says they take pleasure in unrighteousness. I'm having too much fun. You crazy? Life is too short. Men love darkness rather than light. So irreligious people, they're not even thinking about, oh, I hope God's going to let me in. They don't care. Jesus says, think about it. You're going to, what good is it? You got God, you got girls and gold and all kind of fun. He goes, but what good is it? You're going to gain the world and lose your soul? But see, religious people, unlike irreligious people, we pray for irreligious, godless people. Some of you have kids that are out there raising hell or loved ones that are just off the deep end. We pray for them to repent like the prodigal son, where they go, oh, God, I have sinned. I will return to my father. I'm willing to leave this life. I need you to change me. But here's the religious person over there. Well, how, how, how do they repent? Well, they're not repenting from running haywire and hell-bound against God. They repent of their self-righteous pride and their confidence in their own good deeds. 
See, because the moral person, when you ask them, why should God let you into heaven? They go, because I go to church. Because I, I say my prayers. I, I do my penance. I make my confessions. I give to the church. And Paul goes, you have to repent from that. What would that look like? How do religious people repent? Well, this is what, this is what Paul did. Paul says, I was a very religious person. He goes, hands down, I was the most religious guy around. He goes, I was a, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee. I was zealous to please God. But when he learned about the gospel, he says, here's what I learned. All that good stuff that I thought was going to get me to heaven, I threw it in the trash. I counted it but garbage so that I could find Christ and find my righteousness that comes from God as a gift. So if you're here this morning and you've been thinking that maybe you're good enough for God to let you into heaven, you need to repent from that. You need to humble yourself and say, oh God, here I've been like the guy in Luke when Jesus said, he prayed, oh God, I'm glad I'm not like that sinner. You need to say, oh God, forgive me for being self-righteous and proud and thinking that my good works would get me to heaven. How offensive that is. After all, you sent Jesus to die for me. Matter of fact, frequently when I ask people, why should God let you into heaven? And they go, because I'm a good person. I say, think about what you just said to God. Because he said, you're not a good person. He said, Jesus died on the cross for you. And you just said to him, that was stupid. Why'd you waste killing your son? You don't need to kill your son for me. I'm good. So when you know self-righteous people, we're pleading them, stop trusting what you did. Make a conscious decision to repent of your pride and, and selfishness. And, and thinking you're better than others, and turn and trust in Christ alone. Because what happens is we mistake God's patience for his absence. Paul says, do you think lightly of his kindness and forbearance and patience? In other words, well, if I needed to repent, surely God would have smacked me by now to teach me that. No, he's just being patient with you. Bible says God is not willing that any should perish, but he's full of patience. But don't confuse it for his absence. So your life might be comfortable and you're doing just fine and all things are going well. That's not a sign that God is, is pleased with you. It may be a sign that he's being kind to you because he's offering you while you have this opportunity to go, man, I need to turn to Jesus with all my heart and put my faith in him. Because he says if you don't, look at verse 5. Oh, are you telling me? People say this. You're telling me that murderers will be up in heaven with us? And I'm thinking to myself, there's going to be some murders in heaven, but I don't think you're going to be there. Because if you have that attitude that you think you're going to be in heaven because you're good, God calls that, a, look at verse 5, a stubborn and unrepentant heart. And you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation. Now notice, it doesn't just say the judgment of God, of the righteous judgment of God. Okay, God will do exactly what's right on judgment day. Now, you'll hear people say this all the time, my God would never put anyone in hell. And I'm going, then, then whoever your God is, you made him up in your mind. Because that's not what the Bible says. Now this is very unpopular today to preach of the wrath of God. Even Christians today, as they invite people to get saved, they go, if you don't come to Jesus, you're going to be in a Christless eternity. Well, that's true, but in my mind, that's putting a lot of sugar coating on it. The Bible doesn't just call it a Christless eternity. 
The Bible says the smoke of men's torment will rise up day and night forever. The Bible says in Luke 16, the man who was unsaved, he died and he went to hell and was agony in the flames. Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 1.8, people who don't come to Christ through the gospel will suffer the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. And we don't want to go there. We don't want to... So, so, so Satan puts false teachers up, like Rob Bell, who writes a book, and he says, love wins. Everybody will get out of hell eventually. Or we have people teaching annihilationism, like the Jehovah's Witness. Well, you just to perish just means that you burn up and you cease to exist, and then that's it. If you don't go to heaven, you just, boop, there's, there's no such, you're gone, right? There's nothing. It's not what the Bible says. And so Romans is telling us, man, we need to get saved because... God's wrath is going to be poured out on sinners. And I want you to look at how he describes what will happen to people who aren't saved. This is why you should be asking myself, am I saved? And if I am saved, then I need to tell others about this. He says in verse 6, God will render to every man according to his deeds. Now, verses 7 and 8 are a very confusing passage because the Bible always says that Jesus saves sinners by grace through faith, not by works. But this passage sounds like you get saved by being good, right? Look at verse 7. It says, God's going to give you what you deserve. If you persevere in doing good and you seek glory, honor, and immortality, God will give you eternal life. But if you're selfishly ambitious and you don't obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, God's going to give you wrath and indignation and tribulation and distress for every soul who does evil. Now, this is why as Christians we learn how to study the Bible, okay? Satan's clever. The Bible says there are untaught and unstable people who twist the scriptures to their own destruction. If this was the only verse in the Bible about how to be saved, one could see how people would go, it says here you have to persevere in doing good and then you'll get eternal life. And if you're sinful, then you're going to go to hell. But we have to compare that with many other passages of Scripture. So I want to suggest commentators offer two solutions to this. And I'm going to tell you both possibilities. Okay? So how can Paul say if you persevere in doing good, God's going to give you eternal life? Well, one possibility is that he's being hypothetical here. He's saying, look, I already told you that we're all sinners. And that no one's perfect and no one is righteous enough to get to heaven. So... If you want to hypothetically go with your good deeds, have at it. Persevere in doing good. Do it right every single time with no exceptions. Because James says if anyone keeps a whole law and stumbles at one point, he's guilty. So he may be hypothetical here saying, yeah, if someone hypothetically always persevered in doing good, he would get eternal life. That's possible. That might be what he means. But I don't think that's what he means. I think what he means here is he's describing what a believer looks like. So in verses 7 and 8, he says, look, people who are true believers who have repented and trusted Christ, their lives have been changed by Christ. And so their life is characterized by not being that same wretched sinner that they used to be. Now their trajectory is towards Christ. They're persevering and doing good. They're following the Lord Jesus. And you say, well, 
What do you mean by that? In Matthew 25, Jesus said this. One day, God's going to bring everybody to stand before him. And you can read this. Matthew 25, 41 says, he's going to say to one group, depart from me into everlasting fire, prepared for Satan and his angels. And they ask him, why? Why, Jesus? Why are you doing that? And he goes, because when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. Because when I was in prison, you didn't visit me. You didn't give me anything to drink. And then another group, he goes, now you guys, you enter into the blessed kingdom of your father that's prepared for you. And they go, why? And Jesus goes, because when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. And you say, Jesus, that sounds like you get to heaven by being good. But what Jesus is teaching is, no, but the, the characteristic of a saved person is they're going to follow the Lord. Not perfectly, but their hearts have been changed. And so if, if, you, if you call yourself a Christian, but you could care less about what God thinks. You go, yeah, I raised my hand, I said a prayer. But God's will, God's desires are not even on your radar. Then you have to go, wait a minute. Am I truly born again? The Bible says no one who is born again will continually and habitually live a life of sin. He can't because God's seed abides in him. And so I think what Paul's saying here is, look, on judgment day, God will obviously receive those who have been saved by grace, but their lives have been characterized by change. Now, don't look at this and say, well, I don't always persevere. I don't always do good. Of course not. None of us do. But that should be the direction of your heart if you're a believer. That God has forgiven you and out of gratitude, you want to do what's right. You don't want to be selfish and evil anymore. Look at verse 8. Selfishly ambition and unwilling to obey the truth, but obeying unrighteousness. Just persuaded that you want to do what you want to do. and You want to live your way. And who's God to tell me what to do? I got my hell insurance. So I think that's probably what Paul's saying here. He's going on judgment day. Believers will, will be marked by this change of heart. But that's not what gets them into heaven. It's just this is what it looks like to be a believer. But then he goes on and he describes what judgment will be like. He says there will be tribulation and distress, verse 9, for every soul of man who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who does good. And that's a glorious thing to think that one day because God saved us and changed us and now we're trying to live for others, because of his grace, what waits for us is peace and honor and glory. These wonderful gifts of his grace. What an exciting thing to look forward to. But I can think of Jewish people going, yeah, yeah, but we're in. Like, we're God's children. And Paul goes, verse 11, there is no partiality with God. So he's going to close out this section by saying, look, I don't care if you're irreligious and you've never heard the Bible, or if you're religious and you have heard the Bible, if you're not saved by the grace of God, you're going to go to hell. So let's look at how he says this. He says in verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law. Well, think about who this would include. This would include pagan people all over the world who've never even heard the Bible. And you say, well, how can they sin without the law? I once got pulled over in a six-lane highway. 
six lanes, and I'm doing 45 miles an hour, and they're waiting for me with their little radar gun. And, and, and the lady says to me, do you know what you were doing? And I say, yeah, I was doing 45. She goes, exactly. Do you know what the speed limit is? I said, no, but it's six lanes, so I figure it's pretty high. She goes, it's 35. I said, well, I didn't know that. I said, it's six lanes. Why is it 35? Wasn't a school zone. She goes, it's six lanes, but it's 35. At that point, Latin comes back to you. Ignorantum ad regulum non excusat. Ignorance of the law is no excuse, right? So, and I did get a ticket. I'm still at therapy about this. But, <laughs> but here's the deal. People without the law are going to be judged because they still know right and wrong, okay? And we're going to come back to that. Paul says, those who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Now, in verses 14 and 15, we have another problem here. Paul's going to bring in the Gentiles because he's probably telling Jews here, here's why many of you Jews are going to go to hell, because you're self-righteous. He says, but Gentiles are more obedient to God than you are. So in these two verses, there's two possible meanings. He's either describing saved Gentiles... All right, so let's look at this. Uh, there's a famous commentary by a man named Cranfield, written a very long time ago. I recommend it. It's just a short commentary by Cranfield on Romans. But Cranfield says this. In verse 14, Paul's describing a born-again Gentile, somebody who's been saved. Now, here's why. He goes, at judgment day, when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are law to themselves. And then he says this in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. So Cranfield looks at that, and I think this is a real plausibility. He goes, okay, that's talking about saved people, because it says the law is written in their hearts. You go, well, why would he say that? Well, as you study the Bible, some of you are familiar with this. This might be new for some of you, but the new covenant that was promised in the Old Testament that Jesus said, this is a new covenant in my blood, one of the the promises of the new covenant was this great heart change. God said, I will make a new covenant. Your sins I will remember no more. And then he said, I will take away your heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh. And then he said this, and I will write my law on your heart and I will cause you to walk in my commandments. And that's why when adults get saved sometimes, they'll say, you know, it's weird. The things that I used to like to do that were wrong... I, I'm tempted, but I don't want to do that anymore. And then there's a lot of things that, that I would have never wanted to do, like study the Bible or go to church. There's some reason, like, I want to do that now. And I go, yeah, exactly. You know why? Because God's given you a new heart. He's taken away your heart of stone, and now he's written his law in your heart. Read the book of Hebrews chapter 8. This is a wonderful gift from God. He doesn't just say, now nah, I saved you from hell. Now go be good. He says, I not only saved you from the penalty of sin, I'm saving you from the power of sin because I gave you a new life in Christ. And now that Christ is living in you and I've written my law in your heart and you're a new creation, you have the capacity to follow me. And some of you are going, well, I don't feel that way. Well, this is why Jesus said, you must be born again because some of you are still operating with that old heart and you can't figure out why you can't change. It's because you can't change your behavior until you change your heart. And God has to change your heart. So when Jesus said, you must be born again, this is what he meant. He said, listen, 
the first heart you were born with, it's defective. And if you don't do something about it, you're going to crash and burn and go to hell. But if you come to me, you can be born again. I'll change your heart. I'll give you a new heart. A friend of mine, born the day after me, lived across the street from me all grown up. I've been witnessing him for years. He wrote to me an email the other day, and he says, well, that's impossible unless Jesus Christ changes my birthday because I was telling him about a job, right? He says, well, I got to wait till my retirement. That's possible unless Jesus Christ changes my birthday. So I wrote back. I said, well, I'll tell you what. He's not going to change your birthday, but I know one thing. If you don't have a second birthday, you're not going to go to heaven because unless a man be born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. And he writes back. He goes, I guess I walked right into that one. See, because we've been talking about this. But that's a beautiful thing. If you're a Christian, you have a new heart, right? But when you get a note in the mail that says your, call is be your car is being recalled, they don't come and impound it for you. You have to willingly bring it. And that's why Jesus calls the world, come to me. I will forgive you and write my law in your heart. And you will be a changed person. And some of you are struggling with addictions and anger and bitterness and fear and all these things. And you're like, I can't change. And it's like, great. I got good news for you. Jesus will change you. And that may be what Paul's saying here. He's saying, look, on Judgment Day, people who have been changed by God, obviously they're the ones that are going to be in heaven. Or it's quite possible that he's simply saying this about Gentiles. People don't need to hear a word from the Bible to know that they're doing wrong. Because look at the rest of verse 15. Their conscience bears witness and their thoughts alternately accuse or else defend them. So think about what he's saying. He's going, look, when people stand before God at Judgment Day, they can't say, well, I never heard that there Bible or whatever you call it, Bible. I, I never heard that. You can't judge me. And God goes, yes, I can, because you have a conscience. You know what's right and wrong, and you violated your conscience, whether you ever heard one word of my law. In fact, if you've never read this book, I really want to encourage you to read. It's a short book by C.S. Lewis, Many of you, it's one of your favorites, Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis was asked to write to the entire, or to speak to the entire nation of England during the war, and he was given the radio to invite people to become Christians. And the first section of his talks is called Right and Wrong as a Clue to the Meaning of the Universe. So he starts out basically saying this. Now, many of you out there might not believe in God, but let me tell you why I think you might want to rethink that. Where did the concept of right and wrong come from? How come people all over the planet, red and yellow, black and white, doesn't matter whether they've ever heard anything about the Bible, have a conscious sense of right and wrong? And he pleads that that's an evidence that there's a God who created us and put that within us. And his point is, even though people know right and wrong, their thoughts alternately accuse or else defend them. This is what's so scary about sin. It's so deceiving. We know that we violate our conscience, but we come up with rational excuses. Why? Well, our case is different. And Paul goes, really? One day God, now notice how he closes this passage. God's going to judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. Now, the word secrets here isn't like, I've got a secret. It literally means the hidden things. So there's going to come a day, Revelation 20 says, God's going to open the books and he's going to judge you according to all of your deeds, your thoughts, your motives your behavior, your actions. And do you really want to stand before him and say, have a look, and I think you'll see 
why I should be in heaven. So you go, wow. So God's going to judge people, even good religious people like me, or bad irreligious people like them? Yep. So what am I going to do about this? Well, let me share with you some thoughts, because the Bible's meant to be applied, not just to be read. So number one, ask yourself, have you ever experienced God changing your heart? Okay. Some people call it getting saved, right? Now, you don't need to know when that was. Sometimes I think songs are misleading. Oh, what a wonderful day I'll never forget. Some of you go, yeah, I was, I was 15 years old. I, I, I saw Billy Graham. You don't need to know when you were saved. That's not a big deal in the Bible. What the Bible teaches is that you need to know that you are saved, that you do trust Jesus Christ alone as your Savior. And one of the ways that you can look back and you could say, well, is there ever a time when I can look back and see that my life changed, my heart has begun to change? If you're a little kid, it's not like there's these drastic changes. Did you stop stealing and, you know, burying your friends in the sandbox? You were a little kid. There's not these drastic changes. But ask yourself, what is my heart like now? What is my attitude towards sin? Do you, do you love to sin? Do you, do you delight to indulge yourself in sin? Do you pretty much care less as long as you don't get caught? That's a dangerous place to be. The mark of a Christian is, I'm forgiven, and I want to please God. I'm a struggler, and you may be struggling with your sin, but if you're struggling and you're repenting and you're asking God's forgiveness, that's a good mark. And if God has begun to change your heart, Ask him to continue to do that. That's a beautiful thing. Yesterday, I spent time with a man who was so overcome by his sin, and I said, listen, God can change you. Jesus Christ will give you a new heart. But some of you might be going, but you know, what will people think? Here, I'm so religious. That's very humbling. And I'm going, yeah, well, you know what? Stop worrying about what people think. Worry about what he thinks. He's not going to stand before me at Judgment Day. He's going to stand before Jesus. But secondly... I want to encourage you, the Bible tells us that we need to warn people about this coming judgment. In other words, we cannot simply say, well, I just witnessed by my life, right? I want to read you a verse. Many Christians are not aware of this. In Acts chapter 10, this is what Peter said. I want you to write this verse down. Verse 42, he says, God ordered us to proclaim to people. He didn't suggest, he didn't say, just Peter has to do it. He said he ordered us to proclaim to all people that Jesus is judging the living and the dead and that everyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins. So this is why my mind, I just boggle when I meet someone who says, I've, I've been saved by Jesus, I've believed in him. And I go, did you tell your loved ones? And they go, oh, no, 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 we're not going to go there. Right? And I'm going, wait, help me here. So you understand that they're headed for judgment. And you're not going to love them enough to at least ask them, could I talk to you about what the Bible says? Here's a great way to do it. You can say, hey, can I share with you something that I learned this week in church? Somebody once said, how much do you have to hate someone to not be willing to tell them that there's a judgment coming? You're like, yeah, but you know, that makes people get mad. It's uncomfortable. I know it is. You know what Jesus said? He goes, 
It's to your advantage that I gave you the Holy Spirit because he's going to come and he's going to convict the world of sin. And then he said this, and he will convict the world of righteousness and judgment. So when you open your mouth and you share God's word, the Holy Spirit's going, bam, he's, he's backing you. He's working with you. And he's convicting people. And believe me, not everyone's going to say, thank you for reminding me that I'm on my way to hell. I really appreciate it, right? But if I see a blind man walking toward a cliff, I'm not going to go, hey, listen, you know, I don't want you to get mad. I told this story in the first service. When I was a little kid, I, it's hard to imagine, but I was wild, like out of control. Little. I don't even get it, right? So we went to the Grand Canyon. My mom and dad had a leash on me. I've seen pictures of it. <laughs> a leash, like a little dog. I'm still in therapy for that, too. I feel like I'm, you know. Because they're afraid I was going to jump off the cliff, right? And my dad's probably going, just let the leash go. He's all right, you know. Come on, he'll make it, right? Now, suppose, I, suppose they said, but, but we don't want him to be mad. I mean, he might get mad if we, if we warn him and hold him on a little leash. Who cares if he gets mad? It's too important. So the Bible says we warn every man. We teach every man. We plead with people. Jesus is coming. Are you ready? But you know, it's a beautiful thing because the last thing I want to share is this. I want to remind you, the gospel is not just for unsaved people. I take such comfort in this that Jesus shed his blood for me and that I know I'm going to stand before God. And Romans 5 verse 9 says this. It says, being justified by his blood, I'm saved from the wrath of God through him. So I want to close by reading you a little quote. I think this is beautiful. Some of you are getting up in years and you're really thinking, man, I'm going to beat my maker soon. But, you know, none of us know. Don't boast about tomorrow. You might leave this world today. And I can tell you who your judge is. It's Jesus. And if you get before God, and you'll always hear me ask this, what if he says to you, why should I let you into heaven? Way back in 1030-something, a man by the name of Anselm wrote a little, little, little tiny tract that he wanted you to read to people when they were dying. And some of you have loved ones, and, and you visit them on your deathbed. And instead of just saying to them, I'm sorry that you're going to die, offer to talk to them. This is what I say to him. Listen, the Bible says you're going to stand before Jesus. Could I have permission and tell you what the Bible says? Listen to what Anselm says. This is what you should ask people. Consolation for the dying. So I want to get you ready to die. That's part of the job of preaching the gospel is to get us ready to die well. He says, ask people, do you believe that Jesus died for you? And hopefully they answer, I believe it. Do you thank him for his death? And they say, I do thank him. Do you believe that you cannot be saved except by his death? And then he says, you look to the dying person and you say, come now while your life still remains in you. Place your trust in Jesus completely. With him alone, cover yourself. And if God says to you, I will judge you, say, Lord, between judgment and me, I present the death of Jesus. And if God were to say to you, but you're a sinner, say, Lord, but I place between me the death of Jesus. If he says, but you deserve condemnation, say, Lord, but I set before me the death of Jesus between the evil that I deserve. If he says, I'm angry with your sin, say, Lord, but the death of the Lord Jesus Christ is between me and you. And when you have completed this, you say, Lord, I set the death of Jesus between you and me. Isn't that a wonderful comfort? 
that God's not going to say, do you deserve it? The answer is, of course I don't deserve it. But Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. My sin had made an awful stain, but he washed me white as snow. That's a great truth. That's our foundation. That's our hope. That's our comfort. And this is the message that we have the opportunity to share with other people. So I want to invite you to close. I hope this is a blessing to you. And as we continue to study Romans, that you'll grow in grace and share it with others. Father, I thank you so much for the cross of Jesus. I remember the day you opened my eyes and I wept like a baby when I finally understood that Jesus paid it all and that between my sin and your judgment stood the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that every dear person here, man and woman, boy or girl, red and yellow, black and white, rich or poor, that every single person here today will repent if they've never done so before and trust in Jesus alone and have full comfort knowing that his blood has satisfied your wrath, that he paid for our sins. Thank you, Lord, so much for our salvation. Thank you that you have changed our lives. We pray that you will lead us to divine appointments where we can teach our children, our loved ones, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, that we will have opportunities to speak of the judgment to come, but of the powerful good news of the gospel. Help us to not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is your powerful way of saving sinners. Thank you for saving us. Help us to grow as your disciples. And may you use each one of us by the power of the Holy Spirit to bring others to yourself. Lord, for those whose souls are troubled today, may they turn to Jesus and believe and know that they have been saved. Thank you again in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day. And we'll pick it up next week in chapter 217.